0: growth stage founders this is nothing like being an early stage founder alignment is key and why is because a growth stage is when a founder has to go from being a founder to being a delegator and that means that they need to have alignment with their team with their co-founders and with their investors they need to be able to delegate in order for the company to scale properly you're never going to be able to do it by yourself
1: The road of an entrepreneur is guaranteed to be askew, and there are always big questions to overcome. How are tech founders bootstrapping their way to the top while spending money from their own pockets? How do they scale a startup that is primed for a successful exit, yet still remain profitable? These are the types of questions that this podcast will help answer, and it will shine light onto the livelihood of entrepreneurs. The good, the bad, the ugly, and the dirt in between. My name is Jim Barnish, and welcome to the dirt. Our guest today truly appreciates the fact that founders just struggle. And today is here to share some of her own. From being a mother of three kids and of course her other kids, you know, tech startups, she has had her fair share of working through the dirt. Today we talk about being a parent and a founder. We compare bootstrapping versus VCPE and all sorts of alternative financing models, which are very cool. So stay tuned in for that. Uh, We even dig into the massive tech growth that's happening in sub-Saharan Africa. So without further ado, serial tech entrepreneur, Lauren Cassio, welcome to The Dirt.
0: Thanks so much. Thanks for having me, Jim. I'm really excited to be here today.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So obviously a lot to talk about, which I just mentioned, but let's start with kind of the, the roots of who you are. Tell us who you are.
0: Ooh, well, I'm a Floridian, which I think is unique. I live in Puerto Rico. I have for the last decade. I am a mom of three, most importantly, and a passionate entrepreneur likes to build cool tech things.
1: Yeah. And you you've built a lot of cool tech stuff. So take us through kind of that journey.
0: Yeah. So I have so when I first started my very first company. I was coming out of my divorce at the ripe age of twenty-six. <laughs> I had two young kids, two toddlers or school, and toddler school-age kids, and I was living in Puerto Rico, a place where I had absolutely no family. So, I decided to jump, jump the cliff and and yeah, take the dive into entrepreneurship, and it has been quite a journey. So far. So I I went into health tech and then flipped, changed sides of the table almost two years ago in investment and non-dilutive funding.
1: Investment and non-dilutive funding. So we've talked Mm -hmm. on, on this. We've talked in a few episodes around all sorts of models, right? VC, PE. Bootstrapping, but this is a whole kind of new landscape around you know alternative financing models. Can you talk to us a little bit about some of your struggles there in in the previous funding models that's led you to be so passionate about alternatives?
0: Yeah, so I have a ton of experience here and a lot to say. So a lot of my my own experiences with my you know previous investors and previous boards have brought me brought me to the decision to get into investing myself and also pursuing new options in non-dilutive financing now eventually to push data as an asset on the balance sheet as a way to allow companies to explore companies to recognize the value in some of the assets that maybe traditional banks or lenders or investors wouldn't see. So I can bring you through all of those and and then touch on the tricks of the trade. But do you want me to cover first, like what is dilutive financing versus non-dilutive financing?
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Okay. So dilutive financing requires you essentially to give up ownership or, or equity in exchange for capital. So early on, it can often require you to give up like a manager role or board seat, as well as things like preferred equity. This is what most entrepreneurs do. They go down this journey. They have an idea. They start to build a cool business, and then they're like, "Okay, well, I need somebody to give me money to hire developers or come up to hire a marketing team and start to build this product and find clients." So that's the the normal route. You can read all. Of tons of books about it lots of stuff on google about where to get dilutive financing you hear about all the big vcs depending on your geography it may be easy or difficult to reach it which is one of the main problems yeah. it's typically network and geography driven who do you know where do you live really can provide you or prevent that that access to capital uh, so a lot of gaps in in equity financing and then there's non dilutive funding So non-dilutive funding captures a bunch of different types of funding. (laughs) You have grants and grants can be government grants. They can be scientific grants. You have asset-backed lending. So that's like if maybe you have machinery or like real estate or, you know, even more recently, intangible assets, you can take loans out on that. You can get government loans. I think everyone, a lot of early stage entrepreneurs know about SBA loans. You have revenue-based b- financing now that's like Founders Path and Uncapped and Pipe. There are tax credits. So I live in a place, Puerto Rico, that offers huge incentives for certain types of development, like research uh, like research and development. So there's a ton of biotechs here and essentially the government just for creating products here and providing employment to the islands give you cash back every year. There's crowdfunding. So for consumer products, this is one of my favorite types of funding because you have buy-in from your customer base at the beginning. That's like Kickstarter and Indiegogo. You have traditional venture debt, which is, we'll call it minimally dilutive because typically there are warrants or some type of small equity pledge in there. That's usually for a little bit later stage companies. You can go to like Silicon Valley Bank. And after you've done a big raise, you can take additional capital as a percentage of what you've just raised. You also have some accelerators that give you non-dilutive financing in the form of grants. And then sometimes you can consider convertible debt non-dilutive, although it has it has dilutive properties. I hope that wasn't too much.
1: No, that was great. I'm I'm just uh, so let's start on the dilutive side cuz you've you've raised dilutive funding before, right?
0: Yeah, I've done both.
1: Yeah. So tell us about the experience on the dilutive side first, and then we'll jump into the
0: to the non-dilutive. Mm. I wish I knew what I know now when I was first raising capital. So it was a really weird way to raise capital. It was number one, it was my first time founding a company. I was a single mom to two kids living in Puerto Rico, which is just like this really weird geography for, for raising money and i didn't go to the fancy school with this like uber cool network where i could just call on a buddy and say hey do you have friends at this vc or this bank mm-hmm. and so my my path was probably a little bit less traditional than the stories you see from silicon valley and austin now new york the cool cities that get funded and so we ended up raising First tranche of capital was seed money and then some seed money from private equity firm. And then more what I'll call seed money because it was pre-series A from not really a tech investor, but just a generic investor. And I, I learned a lot the hard way. So I had to learn all about preferred shares and warrants and giving away board seats and control of your company the hard way. So, things that I didn't know weren't standard or normal, I accepted as standard and normal. And now, knowing that, (laughs) I try to advise as many entrepreneurs as I can on understanding what you're signing, understanding what's in the agreements, understanding what's coming with that money. So, I think that entrepreneurs focus a lot on valuation and not enough on the covenants in the agreements. So I can explain what that means. Yeah, please. Okay. So let's talk about an entrepreneur and they're like, we're raising this round. We're raising $3 million at like a $25 million valuation. And the private equity firm is like, okay, great. Fine. Sure. We'll take your valuation. What they're not focusing on is that there may be liquidation preferences or there may be a new class of shares that they're requesting, like preferred shares, which basically sets the floor for the return for the investor. So what that means is like on a liquidation preference, for example, they may have like 2x or 3x. So if something happens to the company, that investor, any any money that comes out of the company is basically guaranteeing themselves like a 2x. Regardless, and that doesn't matter if it comes from the founder pool or the employee pool, they're going to get their money back. Sometimes they do it in the form of of warrants. Sometimes they do it in the the form of an anti-dilution clause like full ratchet, where they're guaranteed a price that they paid, even if the value of the company decreases and the company has to do a down round or sell for lower, they're still guaranteed that price. And meanwhile, the founder's like, yeah, but we did a press release and we raised that $50 million. Okay, but did you? And what does that mean if you have to take on more capital or things change? This is not something you think about in your first round. I don't know how many... You work with entrepreneurs, right? How, how many do you see that fall for this?
1: I deal with this all the time. And unfortunately, I deal with it after it's happened in, in all too many scenarios and navigating that rather than being engaged in front of it, which is, it's just, you know, entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know. It's, its and it's not the job of the VC or PE to educate them on that, right? As much as we want it to be (laughs) so that things may be a little bit more of a fair ground, that's what makes them have their business. So it's, so educate, getting entrepreneurs, founders, getting educated on these things is so incredibly important. And some of the things you mentioned, pref warrants, like all those things, they happen all of the time. (laughs) But let's let's flip to the non-dilutive aspect of this, right? So why why the passion around it and and what does that what does that mean? What are some of the examples of that beyond what you gave in the overview?
0: Yeah. So by the way, all VC is not bad. I just want to say that there are great VCs out there that really care about founders and helping them scale and grow and having mutual success. It's just not all of them. So, one of the tricks that I tell entrepreneurs that I mentor now is that they should do a reverse interview. You're being interviewed by by an investor. And what you should do is reciprocate and interview their portfolio, understand how they work with their portfolio, what has been the experience. And I'm not talking about the ones that they put top and center on their website. Go to the other portfolio companies that they're not promoting, not their big successes. So why non-dilutive funding? Well, I think it's a fair way of funding companies and it's more tangible. So even before, so I, I I got into non-dilutive funding even before we started to see an economic downturn and really these things shift in, in the VC world where you have probably LPs missing capital calls and funds putting the brakes on deploying capital Valuation stalling out, more companies trying to tap into non-dilutive sources. So this has been a passion of mine, really, again, from my own experiences in in dilutive funding. And so the question was, why am I so passionate? It's just a fairer way yeah. of of funding companies. It's more tangible. let's let's look at it. If you're doing revenue-based financing, they're literally just looking into how much you make <laughs> and financing you X number of months, and they're just going to take a little bit, a drip, until it's paid off. The same for merchant merchant cash advances. asset back lending, very similar. This is the LTV. This is what we offer. This is what we're going to extend you based on the value of the assets you're allowing us to collateralize. Yeah. That said... There are downsides of some non-dilutive funding. There can be crazy covenants that have all these crazy inspection requirements and could potentially cause defaults. There are senior secured positions that, that debt holders can impose on companies. This is actually very common in venture debt, where if something happens with the company, not only do you owe them the money, but you might owe them your company, including your building. And so you've just lost your entire business. So that was why I I started Gulp. That was a lot of the reason behind it. So I had built a business that had its main source of revenue was data. And data was not recognized as an asset in the company, even though it created all of this revenue. And so I thought, well, what friendlier way of lending money to companies than allowing them to borrow on an asset that nobody else will recognize, Mm -hmm. right? And even in the worst case scenario, they default, not coming after their company, not going to shut them down for not paying back a loan. And so it was supposed to be just a friendlier, you know, (laughs) option for companies.
1: Yeah. And it's an incredible option because data is kind of the new oil, right? (laughs) At the end of the day, it's one of the most incredibly valuable things (laughs) that there is. And so you've got this, this new company, Gulp Data, relatively new platform that can use data to access capital without giving up equity right Mm non-diluted tell tell me about some of the do you have any cool stories to share the of of companies whether it's one of your own or somebody else's that have gone through the process and realizing that this type of funding was out there
0: yeah it's actually we've done no marketing Right, so every all of the companies, and we've had we've probably analyzed I don't know at least over a hundred companies at this point that have come to us, and we started lending in April, so this is still fairly new, yeah, pretty new. I don't know, yeah, it's new, (laughs) very new. Uh, very new. I first went to VCs in my network, people that I trust, that I like their portfolios, I think that some of the companies in their portfolio may be a good fit, and so yeah, the story is basically a lot of those VCs were like, hey. I know, because this is a tool for VCs too, right? To, to not dilute, to hold their positions, even you know during a time when maybe they can't do an, around at, an, at a higher valuation, they also lean on non-dilutive funding. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they sent, had a bunch of companies come through and yeah, they, they do a survey, we qualify them, say if it's a good fit or not. And then we take them to the process of sampling and valuing their data assets. It's yeah. I mean, they're, they're all really cool stories. These are all companies from all stages. So we have funded, I would say pre-seed all the way up to like series, series B, series C stage companies. And now we're starting to get more traditional companies, multinational Mm. billion dollar plus companies that are like, Hey, we're interested in understanding the value of our data assets. Can you help us? And so, yeah, it's, it's been a really interesting learning experience. It's been the most, this is like the most fun I've ever had building a product, I'll tell you.
1: I love that. Like, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's great. So if I hear you right, this is not only companies that are, that are, have a data revenue model, right? This is companies mm-hmm. that simply have data, whether they know exactly what it's worth or not. And, and you're helping them to get an understanding in some cases of, not just how to get funding for it but what their data may actually be worth at the end of the day as well
0: and hopefully encouraging them into a secure and private and sustainable data monetization strategy long term which will add another revenue stream to their already existing business yeah Yeah. so that's the long-term goal
1: powerful revenue stream as well Yeah. Yeah. yeah 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 That's, that's great because I actually have a few folks who, after hearing that that I want to introduce you to that are a little bit later in their evolution, later stage, growth stage, if you will. But they don't have data led revenue models, but they've got millions, if not billions of data points that they've been collecting that means something to somebody. So yeah. that's awesome. Very cool, Lauren. So, so when you connect all of this experience, what you're doing at Gulp to kind of change the landscape, if you will, or shift the landscape the fact that you're working with institutionals in some cases vc backed companies right and also companies that may have bootstrapped and some other f- form of funding along the way what what ties what ties all this together for you as it relates to you know where you see gulp data in 5 10 years wherever whatever that might mean
0: mm. so i think that the main goal with gulp data was to be able to help as many companies as possible, secure funding in order to continue on their mission, which is typically impacting their communities or impacting the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so long term, I believe that in doing so, we will be able to open up this very opaque market, which is data exchange, which is a huge market. Just one segment of it is a quarter trillion dollars like this past year. And yeah, really bring to the surface that this is an asset that should be recognized under gap practices. That was, I think, essentially the vision and mission here was to change gap standards. Love that. (laughs) No, just like something small.
1: Yeah. You know, no big deal.
0: (laughs) No big deal. (laughs) (laughs) Oh,
1: Cool that's that's really cool. and so that's kind of where you see things headed is helping a lot of companies changing gap standards along the way and you know really leaning into that message about data being the new oil, if you will.
0: yeah, and yeah. just i I don't even know if it's I mean for us it's just data, right? but there are so many intangible assets, yeah now brands and influencer relationships and patents which have I think long time been used as collateral. Royalty is all of these intangible assets that just make more sense in the 2020s, 2030s. Like it, it they just make more sense as the core value of so many businesses today. So got to catch up finance has got to catch up
1: yeah no no kidding no kidding the things that you mentioned as you were going through dilutive funding or that you kind of advise other folks on who may have gone through it or might be thinking about going through it just what to be aware of and and what to what questions to ask are you seeing a lot of that a lot of those messy cap tables a lot of messy situations for founders for the for the companies that you're dealing with at gulp are you seeing a lot of the the ability to kind of fix some of that or 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 at least help augment some of it so it doesn't get worse.
0: So, one of the things that we like our valuations to do is actually to provide some tangible evidence of value in an in intangible asset that their investors or board members might not be able to understand or grasp. So, we're trying to really bridge that gap between these like traditional finance crew and digital asset crew. And so we are trying to empower those companies to, or those founders to have some tangible evidence of, hey, this is what it's worth right now. This is what it could be worth if we, this is what it could be worth if we just made these small investments. And this is the additional revenue this could potentially bring our company. And imagine what that would do, right? To our market cap or to our, our valuation. And so, yeah, I try not to talk to every founder that comes through the pipeline just because it's so early stage. I've talked to a handful of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they all have horror stories. Every founder that has at least raised through a series A has some horror stories. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, we, we all have battle wounds, right? Most of us have learned the hard way. And it's because when you, I did a ton of breathing, right? On how to raise money and what does it mean? And I had lawyers and you just, you don't really understand the consequences of blindly accepting terms just because you got one thing that you want, mm-hmm. <laughs> like evaluation, right. until after it, it it has a poor outcome. Right. And so, yeah, all, I mean, all of the founders, they all, well, most of them, have really messy cap tables. They have board members they wish that were not there they have some kind of liquidation preferences somewhere in their agreements. they have preferred shares, no doubt, which means they don't get paid out unless right. something amazing happens, a miracle right yeah yeah,
1: yeah. so it, and you mentioned the the changing of things from a gap standpoint, but then I, I think you also mentioned helping people understand what the asset, could be worth in a different in a different lens is that is that kind of like comparing like a 409a valuation to you know exactly that a 409a might miss yeah 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 exactly that's, that's all
0: very similar yeah and it you know, helps back it. in my
1: head for years why the hell can't somebody do that now you're doing it that's great
0: let's yeah Send some our way. We'll be happy to, to show it off.
1: <laughs> Damn right, I will be. And so those you you those listening to, keep that in mind because this the landscape is tricky around capital raising or capital raising financing, however term we want to use. But at the end of the day, there's a lot of models. A lot of them are newer, like gulps. And there's there's something out there for everybody. And uh that's that's so great to hear. So yeah. I just want to I just want to switch gears a little bit and and we talked about it briefly around being a parent and being a founder how you've went through being through divorce and having three raising three kids while raising startups and these things are not the easiest things to do at the same time in fact they're quite challenging so how did you how did you do it for those listening that like are they might have their kids or thinking about starting a startup or struggling to figure out a way to balance how are you able to do what you've been able to do
0: I don't know if there's some big secret. I don't think it's a big secret. It is straight hard work. It is not easy. It's not easy to raise kids. It's not easy to start companies. It's certainly not easy to do them simultaneously and alone. For the record, I am no longer alone. I've been with my partner long-term now for seven years. And so I didn't start the the newer ventures uh, alone, And I didn't have the third kid alone. But going back to what was it like to start on this journey of entrepreneurship as a single mom of two, newly divorced, had been through traumatic experiences, I had to learn to compartmentalize a lot. So pretty much my personal life was in flames. And then I have two toddlers. And I'm still scrambling to make sure bills are paid and that there's food and that the kids have school and all of the things that they need. So I had to work full time. But then I also had to show up for my company and my team for free because we hadn't raised money yet. So still supporting myself with my full time job, where I don't, I think I slept like probably two hours a night, but I had to compartmentalize. You have to be excited and inspiring and happy and ready to like, Take on the world every time you show up for your company. And so I had to box all of whatever was happening at home and shove it away. That might mean turning off my phone or silencing everything for however many hours I needed to be at the office or with our first clients. Yeah, that it's it's hard. It was really a humbling experience because there's just there's no glamour in it at all you're up all night things break you're sitting with your dev team trying to get things fixed uh, then get to a client meeting by 7 30 kids have to get dropped off and yeah i don't know my brain has probably put mostly as a protective mechanism mostly fogged <laughs> a fog over all of this but i know it was insane it I'm felt insane
1: out of my audience why so don't you? Just, i'm just, just kidding. i'm
0: scaring everyone oh my gosh <laughs> i know
1: no listen i mean th- this is this is you're right. This is not, Hey, let's go start a company. This could be fun, right? This is real stuff where you've got lives that are on the line, not just your family, but lives that are at work and people that are inspired through your vision. And it's hard. And yeah. that's
0: okay. And no, You have to, you learn to be efficient. You compartmentalize, you're uber efficient, whatever most people probably do in like a 10 hour day, you can get done in two hours. Yeah, No doubt. You have to surround yourself with people who are just smarter than you, which can be very intimidating, specifically if you are not educated in that field, or you weren't an entrepreneur before you, I mean, you're like learning it as you go, right? At night, frantically reading books on, is this normal? And so, yeah, you you just have to be smart with your time, allow yourself to be humbled and get through it, power through it with that end goal in mind.
1: Yeah. We talked a lot about Gulp and the, the financing and how you're changing the game there. But one thing that I actually kind of saw as mo- one of the most inspiring things, even beyond that, was was what you've been through over the course of your your familial life and, and obviously the obstacles you have are, are overcome there. And then also some of your passion for the growth in sub-Saharan Africa, which you're doing some other incredible things in. Right. Yeah. Um, talk, talk to talk to us a little bit about why Sub-Saharan Africa, what you're doing there and uh, yeah, just go after it.
0: Sure. All right. So I'll go full transparency. It's been a passion of mine for a really long time, even before I started Gulp. And I thought that I wanted to start a fund to just invest specifically in Sub-Saharan Africa, specifically in health tech companies. And that would be the way that I could make my impact most efficient, which is my North Star. And so I started making investments, started raising a fund, and even got to first close. But I'm not actively deploying capital right now because so much of my time—it wouldn't be fair—so much of my time is consumed in gold data, which I believe I can make an even larger impact. So, but let's talk about Africa because it's such an exciting geography. There's so many exciting things happening. Uh, so I have started making investments uh, in companies across the continent. And why is it so exciting? Well, the first reason is because it doesn't have the population problem like the rest of the world has. So there are like 1.3 billion people in Africa and something like 70% of the births over the next 50 years globally will be on the continent. So, I mean, that's mind blowing if you think about it. It's crazy. And so they don't have the population issues. It has this growing population and a huge need for technology and advancements. Not to mention, they've leapfrogged into digital technology. Like Everyone there has smartphones, right? A lot of people have smartphones. And if not, they're at least connected on some type of mobile device. And you can't really say the same for most other developing regions, including Latin America. And so that's one of the main reasons. There's also a lot less bureaucracy because they're so when you look at more mature markets like United States or Europe, North America in general, you have a ton of red tape implementing new technologies because there's already this digital but kind of antiquated way of doing something. Mm-hmm. And those are owned by multinational, huge, multibillion-dollar companies. And in order to implement a new technology... You have to really work your way through them. Well, the same is not true throughout a lot of the countries throughout Sub-Saharan Africa because there just wasn't a solution, and so they're developing those first foundational solutions now. So yeah, more accepting, easier. They also have they don't need to become multinational companies to be successful because the total addressable market is large enough in their region maybe or in their country.
1: So. Less less resistance yeah. technology across the board yeah. sounds like, and uh, you guys are focusing largely on on health tech, correct?
0: Yeah, so that focus is largely on health tech, and the reason again goes back to my north star, which is impacting lives, mm-hmm. um, and so looking always for impact technologies. Uh, how how are you positively impacting your direct community? How are you positively impacting maybe beyond your direct community into different countries? And so a lot of times that happens at the fintech and health tech level, because those are foundational components of building. Yeah, sure.
1: And are, how many, like, are there a lot of solutions right now for healthcare, health tech out there? Or is this kind of, I know you mentioned before to me, I think that things are kind of two decades or so behind in many cases in the way that you look at sub-Saharan Africa. So what are the solutions that, that are out there that, you know, that are exist today?
0: I mean, so that's exactly it is that they didn't have this bridge of yeah. hospital systems, semi-hybrid, not everywhere, but in a lot of places, it is not as common to have these digital, partially digital solutions that have filled the gaps for the last 20 years or 30 years. And so, even, I mean, the technology I would say is similar, right? Similar to what you would see in Latin America or the United States, but it's the first time it's being introduced. And so it's making a huge impact. It's making just huge strides, right? So I don't know, maybe it's telemedicine. It's still telemedicine. It's still a doctor or a nurse that you're reaching virtually, but it's not that they offered telemedicine through an insurance carrier or through a hospital or clinic prior. So you didn't have that middle step. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Got it. Got it. No, that's so are there any cool solutions? I know you guys are even earlier there that you haven't rolled out any, but are there any really cool companies that you've seen individually that you've invested in that are really changing the game in sub-Saharan Africa?
0: So I've done some personal investments that my intention is to roll them eventually into a fund. Yep. Um, but Gulp has also done a We've analyzed a number of companies from the continent and made investments across the continent. So it's it's geography agnostic, yep. which is why I believe it will make an even larger impact. Cool solutions, yeah. There are some really cool solutions. One of the companies does clinical trial data for African populations, which is really needed in pharmaceutical research. It's one of the biggest gaps in pharmaceutical research. Another one delivers medications in a metro area in South Africa. Another one does on at-home clinic services, something that would normally take you a day or two to get done, like a blood draw. Uh, They come and do it from your house. And then another one that's actually like a FinTech hybrid that does financing for like revenue cycle management, essentially in the healthcare industry. Uh, So that's, that falls in like the healthcare, the health stack. (laughs) Yeah. So there's some really cool technologies out there.
1: So we we have obviously a lot of founders that we cater to it from an audience perspective, but we have a lot of investors who listen in. So if there are investors looking to get more active in some of the whether it's the sub-Saharan region that you mentioned or some of the work that you guys are doing at Gulp, any advice to them as they're starting to dip their feet in the water in in some of those areas?
0: Mm, I love to hear it. You know, it's so funny. I'm starting to get in my inbox. People, when anytime I start something, people are like, "Uh, yeah, you sound crazy, but that's, it sounds cool. So I've gotten used to that. But it's so funny as now after like two years ago, talking to people about Africa and data as an asset, we'll do both they're starting to email me like, Oh, you know, I just got this email list of a bunch of companies in Africa. These are investors, US based investors. Yeah. So I'm so happy to hear it. Love that. I'm a very friend. Well, I'm mostly friendly. I'm mostly a friendly person. So if anyone wants to reach out, feel free. I'm happy to chat about data as an asset, how we can help your portfolio. I'm also always happy to chat about Africa. I have a ton of contacts there. Just in the tech and accelerator scenes, happy to make connections. They're always welcoming US-based investors. That's one of the main challenges there is capital.
1: Yeah, a lot of money here though. So
0: a lot of money here. Let's yeah. Match that up. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so at the end of every one of our episodes, we uh, we ask each guest what I call the founder five. So it's things that are all about you, Lauren, your growth, your company's growth. You name it. So, uh, you ready to get started?
0: All right. <laughs> all, right all right. Cool.
1: So uh, first,
0: now I'm nervous.
1: <laughs> oh well, you should be, but that's okay. Yeah. No, don't be nervous. No. Number one, the top metric or KPI that you are relentlessly focused on.
0: Yeah, positively impacting lives. This is probably not a normal KPI. It's not a a, a BS answer. This is it. This is my north star. So, as a health tech founder. I wanted my technology to help as many patients as possible, help doctors help their patients as many as possible. With Gulp Data, it's the same. I want to help founders get funding so they can help as many people as possible. That's what I call making my making my impact more efficient. And so impacting lives, positively impacting lives. That's it.
1: You know, I've I've gotten about five or so what I would say sustainable sustainability KPI answers, whether that's about environment, community, or in your case, just basically plain human. So I love that answer and I hope I get it again.
0: (laughs) Thanks. Me too. I hope that's at the core of all entrepreneurs journeys.
1: Yeah, it it certainly should be. All right. Number two, uh, top tip for growth stage founders like yourself.
0: All right. So growth stage founders. This is nothing like being an early stage founder. Alignment is key. And why is because a growth stage is when a founder has to go from being a founder to being a delegator. And that means that they need to have alignment with their team, with their co-founders and with their investors. They need to be able to delegate in order for the company to scale properly. You're never going to be able to do it by yourself and so that is one of the most painful processes because ha- building a company is so much specifically your first company is so much like having a child and having to kind of let go take a step back and take a backseat to the teenage years where you believe you've instilled all these values and this alignment and you need to let them see work it out themselves it's i, I don't have another analogy that's no. The one metaphor that came to mind. Mike
1: <laughs> mic drop. So true. So so good. So good. All right. Favorite book or podcast that's helped you to grow as a founder?
0: Okay. So this I can't answer in one because for every stage of my life as a you know, personal and business, different books have had different impact for me. But I will say one of my personal favorite books one that I go back to a lot to reference is a book called The Prophet from Khalil Gibran. Okay. Yeah. I received it for the first time as a gift when I was turning 18 and graduating high school from my mom's sister, my aunt. And I was like, oh, what is this hippie stuff? <laughs> and I came back to it a couple of years later. Yeah. Just a few years later after I became a mom way too early. And I was like, okay, this is interesting stuff. And I have gone back to it and I have gifted it many times over. It's an amazing book. I I feel like every household should have one. A recent book, so I'll give one. A recent book that I've read just because of where I am today is by Doug Laney. It's called Infonomics. And it's a great book for anyone who wants to understand better how organizations use data. So anybody who's building a company, I think, should have a foundational understanding of how data can be used yeah. uh, for direct and indirect monetization. That means improving your own operations just by using insights that you've created. So um, that's yeah, probably one of my, my top recommendations just for where I am right now. My favorite go-to-bed podcast, I don't know if this is goofy, but it's Planet Money. I like listen to it all the time before bed. (laughs) You shut your brain off. You listen to some cool stories and learn about some, I don't know, economics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Why not? (laughs) Very cool. Very cool. All right. We'll get all those in the show notes for you guys too, so that you can uh, go ahead and take a listen or take a read. All right. Last couple are a little bit, uh, a little bit out there, but I'm sure you'll appreciate. So a fourth one is what actor actress would play you in a movie?
0: Oh my God. This one makes me cringe because I would hate (laughs) to think of myself in a movie. Okay. So my, my youngest child, she's three. She really likes bubble guppies and I can totally relate to this underwater world. And so I think I would want to be portrayed as a bubble guppy. Oh my. If I God. had to. Beautiful. Yeah. Why not?
1: Yeah. Why not? <laughs> Love it. All right. And last one is what is going to be the title of your autobiography when you achieved all you set out to?
0: So I don't know if I can say this one because it has a curse word in it, but it's called Bereft of F word. Bereft of fuck. Yeah. Bereft of fucks. Okay. Yes. So, uh, Fux is, yeah, I, I'll give my partner credit for this because this is how he describes me, hmm. but yeah, it goes back. I think to being an entrepreneur and my life experience, like you don't, you can't care what other people think. You can't care about judgment from the outside. You've got to put yourself out there. You can't be afraid of sounding stupid or disagreeing with the entire room around you. You have to really live outside of your comfort zone to make your vision work. Oftentimes, and I'm not calling myself a visionary, but visionaries are going against every grain and people cannot understand what they're thinking or what they're seeing. And therefore, as like a defense mechanism, they will say mean things or disagree with you. And so you just can't care. You've got to shake it off. You have to have thick skin and continue on. So that's been a core value I've learned. I didn't know that about myself until my partner pointed it out some years ago. He's like, you just don't care. I don't, you're right.
1: Oh, good. And I'll go ahead and call you a visionary since you won't call yourself that.
0: (laughs) Listen, you've given
1: so much to our listeners today, Lauren. Time for a little bit of self-promotion. How can those help you out since you've given so much to them today?
0: Mm, Yeah, so, well, if you weren't already, so for the entrepreneurs and investors, If you weren't already centered around positively impacting the lives around you, deeply consider making that one of your core policies in your life. Also, one of the things that we would love, and this does help me, would love is for everyone to explore non-dilutive funding and tell me about your story. So it can be cult data, it doesn't have to be, but if it wasn't let me know. Or if you had a really positive VC experience, or if you're a VC and you had a really positive founder experience, I'd love to hear those stories. They help me continue on this journey. So.
1: Cool. That's great. And what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you, Lauren?
0: Mm, Emailing me. So Maxine sees it. (laughs) I I had uh, an inbox, unread inbox. Maxine is my amazing right hand She's my executive assistant, and the last like year and a half of my life have been incredibly improved because of her. I had over 100,000 unread emails in my inbox when she started, and it drove everyone crazy. So emailing me, I have a bunch of emails. You can put them in the show notes. One of them is lc at gulpdata.com, like Lauren, Cassio, just lc. Uh, I guess I'll give my personal one if you want it casio88 at gmail.com. That's my personal email. So I do answer emails. That is how I'm most responsive these days.
1: Yeah. And shout out to Maxine. Thanks for putting up with me.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. You've met Maxine. Isn't she incredible?
1: She's awesome. She's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. I need a Maxine in my life. Everyone. Everyone (laughs) needs a Maxine in their life. Listen, Lauren, this has been awesome. We'll get those emails in the show notes. Thank you for taking the time today and thanks for impacting the world the way that you've been doing. It's great to speak with you.
0: Thank you so much. And likewise, I love the work you're doing. This is an incredible opportunity for entrepreneurs.
1: Absolutely. A Southeast folks got to stick together. Puerto Rico.
0: Yes. (laughs) Floridians.
1: You got it. All right. Hey, thanks, Lauren. Take care. Bye. If you loved today's episode of The Dirt, make sure you rate it on your favorite platform. And if you really liked us, go ahead and leave us an honest review. Thanks again for tuning in to The Dirt.